Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? Well, folks, it's time. It's time for the obligatory Is E3 Dead episode, the 2022 edition. And yeah, I thought we could chat about E3, the video game trade show, and more recently, Fan Expo, that for the second time within three years, got completely scrapped due to COVID and some other factors. The conference has had some pretty major setbacks and controversies over the last few years, and frequently journalists and analysts have been left asking, is E3 still relevant? And have we seen the last of E3? So today, I thought I would talk a little bit about what E3 is and where it came from, so why E3 is, or perhaps maybe why E3 was, and why things are so different today, apart from, you know, the obvious case of the pandemic. Uh, so spoiler alert, it's not just because of COVID, although obviously COVID plays a really big part. Okay, so to understand E3, 
we first have to go back to the early 1990s, before there was a dedicated video game trade show in the United States. In fact, this was before there was even an organization that could throw such an event. And we have to bring politics into this as well, because as it turns out, political pressure is one of the factors that led to E3 even being a thing. So the early 1990s saw video games maturing. Actually, maturing is kind of a weird word to use. Video games were including more controversial material. The video games of the 80s were largely cartoonish, uh, unrealistic creations. You know, Pac-Man's ghosts were not particularly disturbing. Donkey Kong was a tribute to King Kong, and while determined to throw barrels at poor Jumpman, who would later evolve into Mario, he wasn't particularly concerning either. Heck, out of the earliest arcade games, I would have to say Frogger was potentially the most upsetting, because I hated seeing that little green guy get smushed by a car. Anyway, my point is that games couldn't be terribly explicit, simply because they lacked the fidelity to do that. You did have occasional computer games that got a little bit racy. The text-based and titillatingly titled The Leather Goddess of Phobos pushed the envelope a bit, though honestly the game was fairly tame. And the Leisure Suit Larry series indulged in juvenile male fantasies, straight male fantasies I should say, but it featured really primitive graphics, so it wasn't, you know, particularly explicit. It, it was explicit in intent, but the graphics failed to be able to carry through with that. So for the most part, games were at least a couple layers of abstraction away from being realistic. And then, as hardware and software became more sophisticated, it became possible to create more graphic content, and there was a demand for that kind of game. So game designers began to meet that demand. One famous example of this was the Mortal Kombat games. So fighting games were not a new thing, but Mortal Kombat's focus on blood and violence, particularly with the fatalities that gamers could pull off if they knew the right combo to do, those caught a lot of attention. And on the more lascivious front, there were games like Night Trap, which was a full motion video game. Uh, full motion video is when you use actual video footage within a game. And that game, Night Trap, it featured you as a player that's peeping in on a lot of young women at a sleepover running around in nightgowns. Now, the point of the game was that you were ostensibly trying to protect those young women from intruders who were inside the house, but really most folks just focused on the fact that you were kind of a peeping Tom. The game companies were thriving on controversy, as the concern over the games would naturally lead to greater interest in those games, and sales numbers would go up. But that also meant that lawmakers, particularly those who were the think-of-the-children type of lawmakers, we're pretty certain that these games were a harmful influence on the young. It's a story that we've seen again and again, from rock and roll to Dungeons and Dragons to video games. That, you know, video games are somehow the domain of children, that only children play video games, and that this content clearly is not suitable for children. Now, today I think a lot of folks are aware that video games are something that people of all ages enjoy but I suspect there are still some fossils and leadership roles who can't get their heads wrapped around that. Anyway, the U.S. Congress was threatening to set up a government agency that would assign essentially decency ratings to video game releases. The video game industry, in an attempt to sidestep governmental oversight, elected to create its own ratings board. 
To do that, the industry first formed an organization that originally was called the Interactive Digital Software Association, or IDSA. That group would later, in 2003, rebrand itself as the Entertainment Software Association, or ESA. And I'm just going to use ESA from here on out, but just, you know, be aware that before 2003, it was the IDSA. After 2003, it was ESA. Same organization, though. Anyway, what would become the ESA created the Entertainment Software Ratings Board, or ESRB, and it's this group that evaluates games and assigns an appropriate age rating to those video games. So it's a lot like the MPAA, which does a similar thing for cinematic films. Now, let's finally get to some E3 stuff. Now, I would argue there are two really big factors that made E3 necessary. One was that, as a whole, the video game industry didn't have the respect of the broader tech sector. While video game companies would occasionally secure a booth at other major general tech trade shows like CES, they were frequently pushed out of the way of main show traffic. So there are famous stories of companies in the games industry being forced to set up in leaky tents out in the parking lot outside the Las Vegas Convention Center with only access to like porta potties and no access to food. And, you know, leaky tents are a bad shelter if you've got a lot of televisions, computers, and game consoles running in an effort to show off various games. The video games industry itself was actually picking up a lot of momentum, so it seemed really insulting to these companies that they should be pushed so far off the main show floor. Uh, and, you know, video games have been popular in the 80s, but that popularity was really starting to pick up in the 90s. And yet, publishers, distributors, developers, and others in the business, they didn't have trade show opportunities that would help them do business and aid in discovery, uh, you know, using the press and media, and just generally achieve the goals of your typical trade show. So there was a need there. But another factor that made E3 a necessity is that something needed to foot the bill for the ESA and the ESRB. There needed to be a way to fund the organization that existed so that the games industry could keep the U.S. government off its collective back. And a trade show could be really profitable if run correctly. Game companies could spend bukus of buckos to get show floor space. Uh, you could charge industry attendees a fee to get a badge that guarantees entry. Uh, press would be allowed free entry upon successful registration, as the press would elevate everyone else at the show. So there was this financial need for something like E3 as well. And so in 1995, the future ESA would organize the very first Electronic Entertainment Expo, providing an alternative to the summer session of CES. Because back in those days, CES actually held two shows a year. These days, it has scaled down to a single show held in January in Las Vegas, Nevada. Generally speaking, companies use E3 to promote upcoming hardware and video games, often splurging for massive press events that stack video game trailers and hardware demos, to drive up anticipation for upcoming releases. You also typically see celebrity cameos in these, where you get some celebrity to come out and announce a game. You also see a lot of cringy kind of sketches and attempts at comedy. <laughs> there have been a lot of big announcements at E3 over the years, including announcements for games and systems that never actually came out. And then there are a few that did come out, but severely underperformed. I'm looking at you, Fallout 76. 
Oh, and initially there was one other important element to E3. It was an industry-only event. So the only people allowed to attend the show were people who were in the video games industry or journalists who covered that industry. The general public was not allowed entry to E3, which of course gave the event a type of exclusivity that made gamers really want to go. So if you ever need to have people really want to go someplace, just tell them they're not allowed to go there. Piece of cake, it takes care of itself. Now we're actually going to skip around a bit in the history of E3 because I've already done some episodes about E3 in the past and covered the history in greater detail. So we are going to talk about some big moments in E3 that threatened the show's existence because this is not the first time people have asked the question, is E3 doomed? Is it not coming back? Uh, and I'm not going to dwell on disastrous press events, like the ones that the individual companies have held. There have been lots of those, some combining, you know, cringeworthy entertainment and wooden presentations to lackluster response. And like there are uh, numerous press releases that kind of vie for the title of worst E3 press release ever or press event ever. So those definitely happened. And most of those press events had at least a few low spots. Some of them had more low spots than anything else. And those can stand out as an embarrassing footnote in a video game company's history, but they weren't really a threat to E3's very existence. So while it would be fun to talk about really big misfires in press event history at E3, that's not what this show is really going to focus on. All right, when we come back after this break, we'll talk about some of the things that happened in E3's history that really put it on unsure footing. But first, these messages. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. 
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From the beginning... The ESA organizers chose the Los Angeles Convention Center as the location for E3. However, in 1997 and 1998, the ESA moved E3 to my hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, because, well, in some accounts, it's because the LA Convention Center needed to have some renovations, and in others, it's because contract negotiations between the ESA and the Convention Center had kind of fallen through. So the move to Atlanta was a bumpy one. There were fewer exhibitors who would actually make the journey out to Atlanta. There were a lot of companies that had a West Coast presence, but not an East Coast one. And they just said, no, it's too expensive and and difficult to go all the way there and set up a show. We're not going to do it. And a lot of attendees felt that the Atlanta show was just inferior to the one in Los Angeles, that it was harder to navigate and just less satisfying. So a stumble that was that early in E3's history was a bit concerning. However, E3 would recover, and it would return to Los Angeles in 1999. Now, from 99 to 2006, the show grew year over year. And as the show got bigger, companies felt compelled to make a larger presence there. That meant spending a lot more money. Companies would shell out huge amounts to create spectacular booths, and hold flashy press events, complete with celebrity cameos. I remember one year I went and I saw the the booth for Fallout New Vegas, and I could only see it from the outside, because it was walled off, and you had to have an invite to go in, and I did not have an invite. But man, there must have been a lot of money spent just making that booth look so incredible. This was also an era where you started seeing, you know, more celebrity cameos and there was this prevalent trend of hiring young women to staff booths in an effort to entice people to come into them. Because in these years, the video game industry was still largely focused on catering to young, straight men. Not entirely, but predominantly. And so this the so-called booth babe became a booth standard. Just to be clear... I don't mean to diminish the women who played that part. They were taking a gig, and a gig is a gig. My judgment is more toward the general trend of objectifying women for the purposes of pulling in more foot traffic. Really objectifying women in general, but specifically like using them as advertisements to get people to come into the booth. So my judgment's not aimed at the women themselves, but rather this kind of objectifying tendency. Moving on. One challenge E3 had early on was in timing. The show originally would happen in May, 
So for a company to really take advantage of E3, it needed to have something to show off at E3. And a lot of video game companies really focus on getting releases out so that they're available during the holiday shopping season, so late in the year. But that meant that May was sometimes too early for companies to really have something to show off. So E3 would gradually shift over to June to give the industry a little bit more time to prep something. Because there's nothing like attending a trade show but having nothing to exhibit other than games that have already released. By 2006, the ESA, because by now it was officially called that, was getting complaints from various game companies. Some of those companies were threatening to drop out of future shows because the costs were getting out of hand. E3 had become such a huge party of a show that it was eating too much out of company budgets, particularly for the larger companies that were competing against the other larger companies. And so, in light of these criticisms, the ESA made the decision to scale E3 back dramatically. The 2007 show wouldn't happen at the LA Convention Center at all. Instead, it was moved out to Santa Monica, California, and would be in several hotels as opposed to a central convention center. The event itself adopted the name the E3 Media and Business Summit, which, hey, you know, that's one way to take sexy out of the event. It also moved to July. The ESA capped attendance to around 10,000 people, which was a dramatic reduction from previous years. And in 2008, E3 returned to the convention center in Los Angeles, but was a much, much smaller event with attendance capped to around 5,000 people. That party atmosphere was gone and costs were way down, but interest in the event also dropped. There wasn't a lot of media coverage and big companies began to rethink their objections to the extravagance of previous years. The ESA received several new complaints, which I suspect is exactly what they anticipated, and in fact is what they wanted. After all, leading up to the 2006 decision, the ESA was raking in millions of dollars through E3. It was an incredibly lucrative event, and then with the big companies complaining and threatening to drop out, that became an existential threat to E3, because if the big companies dropped out, well, other companies might follow, and E3 would just cease to exist. So by scaling way back and giving the big companies what they asked for and thought they wanted, the ESA was able to show that what those companies thought they wanted wasn't actually what they wanted. If that was the ESA's plan, it was a calculated risk that paid off. But that really could have been the end of E3 right then and there. Now, one thing that did shake ESA up a bit was that in 2008, Activision, fresh off its acquisition of Blizzard, pulled the eject cord not just on E3, but also the ESA as well. Activision had been one of the founding members of the ESA back when it was the IDSA. So this was a big deal, and it was a sign of things to come. And in 2009 things started heading back into the more splashy, extravagant, and more importantly, expensive direction for E3. I also think 2009 was the first E3 I attended, so I went the year that it shifted back toward becoming a big spectacle. For a few years, E3 flourished. 
But things began to shift as early as 2013. That was the year that Nintendo changed its E3 strategy. Now, previously, the company had done the usual routine, which involved holding an in-person live press event in front of an audience, and you would have presenters revealing game trailers and footage, and occasionally scripted conversations between people that was tried to be passed off as like natural conversation. That never worked, by the way. Instead, Nintendo decided to go and present digital pre-taped segments, which makes sense. You have far more control there. Like, you can do take after take until you get it right. When it's live, you get one shot. And if it went wrong, well, that's that's live theater for you. It's one of the things I love about live theater. It's one of the things big companies hate about live press events, because unless everything goes perfectly, it could become a disaster. So this was the beginning of what would become Nintendo Direct. And over time, Nintendo would actually shift these digital presentations away from E3 timelines entirely, which freed up Nintendo to reach its audience on the company's own schedule, rather than having to account for a trade show schedule thrown by an independent organization. In 2016, Electronic Arts, or EA, left E3 and started its own event, held before E3 would actually start, so Electronic Arts had its own specific event catering to EA's announcements. And that gave EA the chance to really stand out without having to compete against all the other companies, and so it could hold the spotlight for itself. And EA was a big enough company to pull this off. As we will see, this was the beginning of a trend. We'll be back to talk about this more after these messages. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. 
With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Okay, so we talked about how Activision had pulled out of E3, how Nintendo gradually migrated away from E3, and how Electronic Arts would do the same. Blizzard, which by this point was part of Activision Blizzard, would also begin to sit out E3. Since 2005, the company had been holding its own fan event called BlizzCon, and slowly BlizzCon became the main showcase for upcoming Blizzard titles. So instead of revealing that stuff at E3, Blizzard would reveal it at BlizzCon in front of rabid Blizzard fans, because it was the best chance for getting that big reaction that could help promote upcoming titles. Like EA and Nintendo, Blizzard saw the value of catering to its fans directly on its own schedule without the distraction of other game companies vying for the spotlight. In 2019, we saw Sony pull out of E3. That was a truly tremendous blow. For years, one big discussion around E3 was always around who, quote-unquote, won the show. And typically the conversation was, did Nintendo, did Xbox, or did PlayStation win the show? Did Sony win? Did Microsoft win? But by 2019, Nintendo was no longer really a prominent presence, at least not at press events, and Sony was gone too. Microsoft would remain, and of course video game companies would still bring Nintendo and PlayStation systems and games to the show in order to demonstrate them. So it's not like you would walk into E3 and all you would see would be PCs and Xboxes. There were other systems there, but those withdrawals stirred a lot of talk about E3 kind of losing its purpose, that more and more companies were drifting away from E3. Now, something else that cheesed off a lot of folks in the industry happened in 2017. That was the first year that the ESA decided to sell tickets for E3 to the general public. Now, that first year, they capped ticket sales at 15,000. And of course, tons of people were eager to get in there. They had seen the videos of extravagant press releases with celebrity appearances. They'd seen footage of folks getting to play games that the rest of us would have to be, you know, waiting around for months or years to try. And for two decades, the general public had been told it was not welcome to attend. So, of course, those tickets sold out in a heartbeat. But here's the thing. E3 was not organized to handle that kind of experience or traffic. That's not what E3 was built to do. There were other fan-centric events that were far better prepared and designed to handle the general public. The Penny Arcade Expo, later just known as PAX, 
is a big one. PAX events see tens of thousands of attendees, and generally speaking, these events have a reputation for being well-organized and well-run. But E3 was a different beast, and so a lot of folks discovered that their ticket really just gave them the opportunity to wait in a line for four or five hours in order to play just about 10 minutes worth of video game content. It hardly seemed worth it. But selling those tickets was a big source of revenue, and the ESA was not going to stop. Nor was it going to put in the right amount of time and effort to adjust the experience to better suit an event open to the general public. So it kind of chose the worst of both worlds. It alienated the industry attendees, who found it increasingly difficult to navigate the show floor, and it disappointed fans who had traveled really long distances and spent a lot of money to attend an event that was pretty poor as a return on investment. There were other massive problems, too. One of those happened in 2019, when folks discovered that the ESA had been terribly negligent with attendee personal data. On the ESA website, there was a way to access attendee personal information, which led to tons of folks effectively being doxxed by the ESA, including lots of video game journalists. In fact, primarily video game journalists. Now, I'm not sure if anyone I know personally was affected by this, but certainly people that I admire and follow were. And y'all, if you haven't followed video game journalism, you don't know how ugly that stuff can get. Passionate gamers can get very opinionated about people who fail to fawn over a specific game system or title. Someone who is a diehard fan can take personal offense to a less-than-glowing review, and several game journalists have found themselves the targets of online abuse and worse. So with this doxing, it meant that those threats could extend beyond online harassment and into the real world. And considering that the ugliness of Gamergate wasn't that far in the rearview mirror, I mean, Gamergate really got started in 2014, there was a very real threat going on here, particularly for women who appeared in that database. A lot of the names on that list, which it also wasn't every attendee at E3, it was like 2,000 of them, but a lot of those names were media and social influencers. So as you can imagine, that prompted a pretty harsh reaction to the ESA's negligence. While the ESA pulled the initial list down, other people found older databases that were still accessible from ESA's site, so people who had attended past E3s. ESA would take care of those too, but the organization had severely tarnished its reputation among the media, which, you know, for a trade show big on press events, was not a good move. In 2018, there were reports that emerged that the ESA itself had a toxic culture and that there were allegations that the then-president of the association, a guy named Mike Gallagher, would frequently pit his employees against one another, and he also had a tendency to insult his subordinates. The complaints prompted an internal investigation, and in October 2018, Gallagher stepped down from the ESA and was replaced by Stanley Pierre-Louis, who initially was an interim president, but who has since taken the job on a more permanent basis. The ESA had planned to increase the number of tickets sold to the general public in 2020 to 25,000, with the ESA saying that E3 would become a fan and media festival, which sounds like the ESA's plan was to try and make E3 more like a PAX and less like a trade show. That kind of makes sense, as a lot of the big names had already withdrawn from E3, which, you know, meant that they were opting to hold their own events instead, so E3 had to do something to adapt. 
Jeff Keeley, a journalist who rose to fame in the G4 TV days and who had spearheaded the development and production of the Game Awards, and also a man who hosted an enormously popular event called E3 Coliseum, announced in early 2020 that he would not be attending E3 that year. That was a pretty big announcement because Keeley had become a big part of E3 for several years, arguably serving as one of the faces of E3. As it would turn out, his decision to sit this one out would end up being moot. And that's because of a little thing called COVID. As epidemics evolved into a pandemic, it became clear that big gatherings filled with lots of people in close proximity to one another might not be such a good idea. E3, which was in the middle of this kind of identity crisis between trade show and fan expo, made the decision to pull the plug on the event and canceled the 2020 show entirely. Keeley would end up organizing a digital event called the Summer Game Fest, which for several companies served a similar function as E3. It gave them a chance to promote upcoming games and tease some that were in earlier stages of development. Keeley and crew have continued with the Summer Game Fest, the most recent one being just a week ago. Unlike E3, the Summer Game Fest isn't confined to just a week. It can theoretically stretch across the entire summer and give developers more opportunities to prep the best digital event that they can muster. In 2021, E3 would return, but only as a digital event. There would be no show floor or heavily attended press events. Companies put together digital video packages that could stream out to an eager public, most of whom were stuck at home anyway due to COVID. Initially, ESA hoped to bring E3 back in 2022, but obviously that fell through as well, and plans for a digital event never emerged. So in 2020 and in 2022, there was no E3 at all. That didn't stop various companies from holding their own digital events, announcing video game titles and showing off trailer and gameplay footage. We've seen several of those over the last couple of weeks, in fact. For the record, the ESA says that it does plan to have an event in 2023, but most folks now suspect that whatever that event turns out to be is going to be very different from the E3s of the past. Maybe it will be a better run fan experience, something that lets people share their love of games with a community of fellow fans. That would be cool. Maybe it will be the type of event that will inspire multiple companies to participate and tap into that fan enthusiasm. That would also be cool. But a lot of people have written off E3, essentially saying the event itself is dead. At least as it was initially envisioned, it's dead. Back in 1995, the web was still new. Dynamic web pages capable of streaming video and holding live chats were not really a thing in 95. Companies, particularly big companies, didn't have an easy way to reach out to other industry players, from retailers to the press. But today, things are very different. The very technologies that allowed so many of us to shift to working from home are the same ones that facilitate communications between big companies and everybody else. And like I've said a few times during this episode, companies can now do this on their own schedule. They don't have to rush to get a presentation ready for a trade show. They don't have to fudge gameplay footage and hope no one notices that it's actually a cinematic designed to look like game footage. They don't have to hire comedians to tell cringeworthy jokes or show a complete lack of interest or knowledge about games. There are so many stories of press events where the host clearly had no 
no knowledge of video games in general and no interest in it. And it just sucked the life out of the event. It means that they don't have to hire Cirque du Soleil to come out and alienate a captive audience for three hours. And yes, that did happen once. Now, one group that is definitely hit very hard by E3's diminished importance would be the independent game developers. These are people and companies that lack the resources and reach to hold big digital events that get lots of attention. These people, who have made some truly incredible games, some of my favorite games of the last several years, came from small independent developers. They're in danger of losing a platform that otherwise would let them find their audiences. Some companies, like Sony and Microsoft, will invite independent developers to take part in larger digital presentations, so it's not all hopeless. But for many of these small to mid-range players in the space, the loss of E3 is a really tough one. As for what I think about E3 and its diminished presence in the video game industry, uh, I'm okay with it. Uh, I, I... didn't care for E3 selling tickets to the general public because it did make my job a lot harder. Um, Not that I wanted to be elitist and say, like, I got to do something that no one else got to do, but rather I I couldn't cover nearly as much because I just couldn't be the places I needed to be because there were too many people between me and where I needed to go. So I was really frustrated because the purpose for E3 had changed but my purpose of being at E3 had not changed. So after that, I just decided to stop even applying to go, and I sat it out. I thought, well, you know what? There are plenty of other outlets out there, most of which have huge presence, and they can cover this much better than I could. I'll just look at the coverage and go from there. So I'm not really sad to see E3 go in that sense, If E3 does come back as a more fan-oriented experience that actually delivers on that promise, I'm all for it. I want people to have that experience of being excited about video games, get that chance to get their hands on stuff that hasn't come out yet, to give the companies the chance to promote their work. I want all that to happen. I just don't need to be there. (laughs) And I do need it to be well-run, because as it stood before the pandemic... The way E3 was being run just was not a positive experience for most people. I mean, I can't imagine having spent all that money to travel to Los Angeles, maybe get a hotel room, buy a ticket to go to E3, and then get to play maybe two demos, or maybe three, if I was really lucky. Maybe I could play a few more if I wanted to play stuff that just was kind of like cheap mobile games or something. But like the big name stuff, you're lucky if you could do more than a couple just because the lines were so long that you'd be dedicating most of your day just waiting to play. That's not great. That wraps up this episode of Tech Stuff. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in the future, you can always let me know through the talkback feature on the iHeartRadio app. Just navigate over to the Tech Stuff podcast page. You'll see a little microphone icon. If you click on that, you can leave a message up to 30 seconds in length. You can let me know if you want me to use the audio too, and I'll use it in upcoming episodes. Or, of course, you can reach out on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, Yeah. And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.